Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to a special edition of SITREP. This week, we hear in full from the British general helping to enforce the uneasy armistice between North and South Korea. North Korea's growing nuclear weapon and missile capabilities and its links with Russia have raised fears about increased tension in the region. It's 70 years since an armistice was signed after hostilities on the peninsula, but North and South Korea have technically been at war ever since and remain locked in a tense relationship. Enforcing the armistice is the work of United Nations Command Korea, which oversees the agreement along the border area. The UK is a member of the US-led UNC. Its deputy commander is Lieutenant General Andrew Harrison. I spoke to him earlier to find out more about enforcing a very fragile status quo. It's quite interesting because most of the people I talk to think it's a, a sort of blue beret wearing United Nations, what used to be called uh, Department of Peacekeeping Operation, but it isn't. It's uh, it's a United Na- uh, U- United States-led mission that is mandated by the United Nations Security Council back in in 1950, uh, and um, we are here to enforce the armistice and some other other parts. But I'm the deputy commander, and it's a privilege to be here. So, what kind of things do you do on a day to day basis? So. During um, during a, a sort of run of the mill week, it, it will be really the maintenance of the demilitarized zone and the very complex rules relating to the armistice and the coordination of the 17 member states that make up the United Nations command under the that US uh, leadership, General Paul Cameron that I was talking about. So, so what exactly is the remit of the command? The first remit is to enforce the 1953 Armistice Agreement, coordinate the sending states, and that could be through crisis into conflict, and then execute any other assignments or functions as directed by United States um, national authorities. And that comes through the the Joint Chief of Staff, General Milley, over in Washington. So um, South Korea, the Republic of Korea, has its own forces. The the US also has its own sovereign forces there. How does the UNC fit in with those forces? It's what we described as, describe as a tri-command under General Paul. And in no particular order, the United States Forces Korea, USFK, are the sovereign US command. So they deal with uh, issues that are exclusively directed by Washington. And, and so, for example, nuclear submarines, strategic bombers, those sorts of things. Um, then we have the Combined Forces Command, which since the 70s has been what is the Warfighting Command. And that's a bilateral alliance between America and the Republic of Korea. And then the third command that he is in charge of is this United Nations command, and that has responsibilities for armistice enforcement and the 17 member states of the United Nations command. And as you can probably envisage, as we move to crisis, the member states would become more and more involved potentially through national command elements, but certainly talking back to capitals about how they would react to um, the crisis developing, how they would support, and then we will coordinate that with Combined Forces Command, that that, that bilateral ROC-US alliance. It sounds uh, sounds like fascinating work. How, how big is the demilitarised zone that you oversee? 
Well, it runs about just shy of 200 kilometres if you include the, the maritime area and the, the River Han estuary out to the west. And it is it is five kilometres deep um, from the military demarcation line, the de facto border it, south. Uh, and then it also runs five kilometres in the north. But that is um, that is controlled by the Korean People's Army, the North Korean troops. And when you mentioned that, that your job is in part making sure the armistice is upheld, um, practically, what does that mean? So there might be amendments to the armistice as things change. I mean, one could imagine the dynamic uh, issues to do with cyber and space and how does that relate to a modern day armistice? It might be investigating allegations of breaches in the armistice and we coordinate with the neutral nations supervisory commission who they sort of police the armistice uh, it might be um, it might be working with the unc military armistice commission um, who have a role up there as well coordinating with the rock forces who populate the southern part of the demilitarized zone the detailed organization of negotiations that might go on between the north and the south in the joint security area and that's really the only fully demilitarized part of um, part of the dmz uh, so it's you know hugely complex hugely interesting and every week something happens you know it might be a forest fire where we have to get helicopters in to put the fire out it could be um, one of the millions of unexploded ordnance or IEDs that are up there initiating and causing casualties it, it could be a potential breach it could be a defector I, I never quite know what I'm going to be dealing with in the morning when the phone goes or in the middle of the night when the phone goes so um and you never quite know what is going to be a simple tactical problem to solve and what is actually going to be something of strategic importance that could explode either literally or or in, in the media context into a regional, national or global issue. Sounds like highly sensitive work. Um, in terms of the, the coalition itself, how does it, what's it like working with that number of nations and how many exactly are involved? So there are 17 and they're, they're a, a disparate group because they come from all over the world. They're, the core is formed from the 22 that were initially part of that 1950 to 53 war. And the, seven, the 17 who remain um, come from countries as far afield as Thailand, uh, the Philippines, Colombia, France, you, you know, a real mix. The, the five eyes um, all represented in in the in the 17 nations and I, f I find it fascinating I've spent much of my life working in in operational coalitions around the world uh, and I was thinking about it the other day 1994 in Northern Ireland was the last time I worked on a purely sovereign UK operation and since then whether it's been Iraq, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, um, you know, any any other operation I've been on, and there have been many, it's been in a coalition of sorts. Um, and my last three jobs, this job, CENTCOM um, under General McKenzie in, in uh, Tampa, Florida, and in Kabul under General Miller, I've worked directly to a, an American four-star commander. So I'm pretty f familiar with the with the privilege of working to with our US allies and directly under a, a US four-star general. 
a major military exercise has just been run, Ulchi Freedom Shield. Uh, what did that involve and what was the UNC's part in that? Yeah, it's just just a fascinating exercise. It it is it runs in a series of of sort of slices. The first is the build up to crisis and how do we attempt to de-escalate and get people back around the negotiating table. Um, you know, how how do we judge what's proportional response? Those sorts of questions. Then it moves, then there's a time jump, more people come in and it switches to the commencement of, of hostilities between the North and the South through a, a scenario that changes on every iteration. And then the third chunk relates to, right, Full-scale military operations are underway in the context of a country that uh, is being being threatened or being being fighting against a nuclear and chemical armed belligerent, and we work through massive four-star level manoeuvre on a scale that we very very rarely get the chance to to execute in training in other venues around the world. It's a it's a rare elaborate complex and stimulating opportunity to really practice the 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 art form that we spend a lot of time training towards and can you describe that the range of scenarios you work on yeah uh, um the range of scenarios is almost anything that you could imagine in the real world in the context of the real geographic location so we operate across all domains. So there's space, there's cyber, there's the maritime marine component, there's obviously ground component and air component. So in parallel, all of those uh, domains and all of those fields of expertise are working in parallel. And we're trying to synchronize that activities across you know, multi-domain operations in a way that it is really difficult to do and very rarely practiced at scale. So you know, every day we have a series of, of injects and we have troops exercising, well, people exercising from the government level. And I know from UK listeners would be would know how difficult it is to get ministers and um and agencies involved at government level in training. Well we do that twice a year, twice a year, um, certainly once a year minimum with the with the government. Then right the way down to the the four star commands, the chairman of the Republic of Korea's um, military forces, General Kim, um, and and every layer underneath is being exercised either virtually or constructively or out on the ground um, simultaneously. So is it very visible to the people of South Korea? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's huge. And it, it is often seen as a, as a, as an inflammatory act by North Korea, but actually it's all about readiness. And you, you know, training is something we, our ability to train in the UK is taken for granted. You know, there might be challenges about noise pollution and, th- and those sorts of issues, but the ability to conduct exercises is is regarded as a normal part of readiness training. But but here it it generates normally generates some form of reaction from from the north, which is unfortunate because that's definitely not the intent. The intent is just to to prove that we can work together, and mm. um, and and actually that can only 
be a deterrent to stop us going into um, a more dangerous scenario. Has there been much reaction this time? I don't think there has, has there? I mean, none of this, or it very rarely hits the media, but but the re response um, has been, as usual, missile testing or, or um, missile launches, you know, rhetoric, etc. So so it, it almost always generates a response of of some type, and and I think the UK media, because of the number of um, events that have occurred in the last year and a half, in particular. Um, have have just rather become conditioned to what's going on as normal, but mm. but they are breaches of international law. They are breaches of United Nations Security Council resolutions. You know, this is illegal activity by the rules that that um, we purport to support um, that is going on in the north, and and we must never forget that. And our our media must never see this as just normal um, activity. Uh, it is against uh, Security Council resolutions. Um, just to go back to, to your position, how significant is it, do you think, to have a British general in that position as deputy commander? Um, I mean, it's a um, it's a massive privilege to me. But for the for the UK, you, you know, we t we talked a lot about the Indo-Pacific tilt. And it was great to see CSG, the Queen, um, CSG 21, the, the um, Queen Elizabeth come over here um, a, a couple of years ago. Uh, and we have other maritime marine and, and army assets and, and air force assets come out here. But but what this gives the UK is a is a permanent three star voice in in North Asia, which, well, there hasn't been any voice above one star level east of Suez since the 70s. So this is really, really rare. And. I, you know, go to the Shangri-La conference, go to Land Pack, go, to, you know, have the pain of having to go to Hawaii for conferences, and you know, so so the world and and the countries in Asia are consistently seeing the same British face um, mm. involved in deep discussions, and you know, I've just come back from the Philippines and um, and Thailand, which are member states, and uh, dealing with three and four star generals there. Um, about you know big UK issues, um, and I work very closely with the UK embassy here and in Japan, where we're also based. We, there are seven United Nations command bases that we can access in in Japan. So it gives a bit of a regional flavour rather than just a national flavour of the UK in in Korea. It, it sort of expands beyond that with with all the meetings that go on in Indo PACOM in the sub-unified command that the Americans have in Japan and this sub-unified command that exists in Korea. And how does this compare to other roles you've had in your career? Crikey, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, this for me, and I had no no real concept of this before I came here, you're constantly on a knife edge. So so twice during my year and a half, I have genuinely thought, wow, we're going to war. Oh really? I think that's really difficult to to visualize or understand from from the UK because we have so little understanding of what's happening in Korea. We have so little understanding of the the huge tension that exists between the north and the south and we consistently refer to 70 years of peace since the armistice but actually over 700 
servicemen and women have died since the end of the war in this in this conflict uh, on the on the on the from the the south's perspective you know 46 people were killed in the in the chenon um the sinking of the rock ship chenon a couple of years ago you know an island waipido island was shelled by the north again a couple of years ago ieds are planted by the north are still exploding on regular occasions so if you think if one perceives that this is a peaceful scenario for some of the time it is but you're always on that knife edge where one incident could lead to another that could rapidly escalate to to major conflict um and and that's that that keeps me awake at night to be honest either either literally because um incidents are occurring or through the concern that something is going to happen you mentioned that there were two occasions where you actually thought sitting on that knife edge that that we might you might be going to war can you tell us more about those incidents i i have to be slightly um opaque about it but we have a great indicators and warning system that it, that exists uh, and it is a very complex environment where interpretation can be misconstrued where the quality of the munitions that the north are are using is never of the same quality as the UK and US um, allies have. And therefore, accidents continually are happening. And each of those can, as I say, spark a a spiral of of, um, escalation. And the Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un is not a man who is afraid of of prodding the tiger. So um, if you look at the, the drone flights that that the north put over seoul in on the 26th of december last year that that was of real significance and elicited a response from the south um and so every incident one never quite knows where it's going to end up mm. um and so our job is to enforce the armistice and seek to de-escalate back to a stable position of armistice but because it has been it has never escalated to full-scale war as it was in 1953 there is this impression that it's it's all peaceful but we're only in armistice you know there is no peace treaty these two countries are still at war and if you go to the to the front lines you see there are men and women in bunkers that you would recognize from afghanistan and um uh, and, and Iraq at high readiness with you know rifles made ready staring across the demilitarized zone at North Korean troops the Korean People's Army and there is this constant sense of tension and risk that that exists it's a surreal place the demilitarized zone for lots of complex reasons um, but it's it's also a, a really dangerous place from the sort of tactical level all the way up to the strategic risk that exists all the time. We talked on SICRAP a few weeks ago about how 70 years on, as you say, North and South Korea are still technically at war. It is just an armistice. What kind of mindset do you need for that unique situation? I I think you have to fight a mindset that tells you it's been peaceful for 70 years, relatively peaceful 70 years, so therefore that peace is guaranteed. 
you know, we use the strap line here, we fight tonight. Um, and and I think you've got to actually think of that and train for that and be prepared for that. And when you travel around Seoul, this amazing city that, you know, is is just incredible in terms of development and beautiful skyscrapers and, you know, incredible culture. It's easy to forget that only 30 kilometers away, there are thousands of artillery pieces trained on Seoul. It is easy to forget there are hundreds, if not thousands of ballistic missiles that are pointed at you know, insert the, the city of the world because the ranges of these missiles now are intercontinental. It's easy to forget that there have been seven, six nuclear tests of real importance that have occurred and we are anticipating a seventh one. So, so what was a conflict between two countries that may have had regional consequence is now, is now an international risk that could very rapidly, because of the missile technology, have have global consequence. Uh, and of course, if you're talking about nuclear capability, you're talking about global consequence that's unimaginable to, to, to us in the modern context. And the British commitment to the United Nations Command in the UK, it, it's a long-standing one, isn't it? Yeah, uh, we've been here since since the beginning. The relationship that the people of the Republic of Korea have with the UK is based, I would say the majority of it is based on that historical relationship from the war. It, it's fascinating. I, I worked in Imjin Barracks in Gloucester. The Gloucester Regiment fought with great valour uh, in the in the Battle of Imjin. And, um, and the Koreans talk about British troops as Gloucesters. Didn't matter whether you came from the artillery or the Middlesex Regiment or whoever it was, even the Navy, they're just re referred to as Gloucesters. Uh, and you know, every Korean over 50 has this incredible um, grateful thanks to the British for what they've done. And mm -hmm. many of the youths, that echoes through the generations so that they still have a uh, a respect and a love for the British that quite often we don't understand or can't really relate to. But it all goes back to those a thousand a thousand souls that we left um, we left in the graveyards of um, of Korea during the war. So um, it was a painful sacrifice, but it it has it has borne rich dividends for the people of Korea in terms of the the peace and prosperity that they've enjoyed for the last seventy years. And how much longer are you going to be there for? So I'll finish at the at the end of the year, the exact date to be confirmed. But um, but uh, it's been announced that the, Can the Canadians will send a replacement. It's a rotational job between the Australians and the Canadians. And and I was very fortunate to um, to catch the selector's eye to break that rhythm for, for two short years. Good to speak to you, Joel. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep.